So we come to Sila Pata Paramasa, the uh, third of the uh, the fetters, the um, obstructions to uh, uh, stream entry. The last fetter of this group, Sila Pata Paramasa, is translated here as the distorted grasp of rules and vows. The distortion being the underlying belief that there will be purification through keeping particular rules, vows or practices, or that by being able to do things the correct way, somehow one will be liberated. So um, the, the uh, sila in that respect is like uh, our English word ethics, so a uh, principle or an ethic. And then um, the paramasa means a kind of the wrong holding of it, the wrong grasping of it, or the sort of the kind of knotting up or sort of contorted way of uh, of holding it, or sort of twisted, uh, is the tones of meaning with uh, paramasa. So like a distorted grasp of precepts and uh, principles. And uh, Lumpochai used to use it very um, broadly and generally as a attachment to conventions, so that not just uh, spiritual practices like believing that all your bad karma is going to be washed away if you bathe in the river Ganges or um, that uh, you know if you uh, sit on enough meditation retreats that your mind will become peaceful just by uh, the virtue of the fact of sitting there and, or that um, if you go to uh, uh, confession with the Catholic priest that you're again you're if you say enough uh, Hail Marys or um, do enough penances, then again your your bad karma will be uh, will be uh, wiped out. <clears throat> but rather the um, uh, which are the kind of religious practices. But uh, Ajahn Chah would also expand that to the conventions of say society, like what we call um, say uh, valuable, uh, what we call um, attractive or unattractive. Um, that uh, he would. Group that under the sila pata paramasa, like the um, the feeling that keeping certain um, certain rules is the right way of doing it. Like that the um, that uh, uh, in Thailand, say for example, it's very um, offensive to touch somebody on the head unless it's a, like a young child or someone who's very close to you in the family or a very close friend. Touch someone on the head, and it's a kind of offensive or you know, outrageously uh, intimate act. And so uh, in, uh, in his Dhamma talks, when he went back to, to Thailand after visiting the West for the first time, uh, he, uh, he said, you know, it's, it's amazing. You know, after, sometimes after sitting together in meditation, they'll just you know, touch each other on the head. I'm not quite sure what the scenario would have been, but uh, he said, <laughs> so uh, when I first saw that, I thought, wow, they, that's amazing. They just kind of touch each other's heads. Like, uh, and then he said, but then I reflected, but... You know, touching someone on the head is just like touching a cabbage, really. There's no, <laughs> there's no difference between a cabbage and someone's head, really. It's just a round thing. And, uh, and you can almost, as I, I've often reflected when I read that, you can almost feel the sort of collective intake of breath at Wat Bapong when he's up on the dumber seat saying, you know, so, touching someone on the head is just like touching a cabbage. You, can, <laughs> you, know, you can't say that. It's like, a, you know, a, head, a person's head isn't like a galumpy. It's, not a, it's like a... You can't you can't say that, but then he said, "Well, why? You know, what's the difference? You know, touching a cabbage, touching a head. You know, it's just a round thing. You know, why do we make it so different?" Or um, the convention of shaking hands. You know, he'd never really come across that before. The people expected to shake hands with him, and he was first of all, 
And people are sort of, oh, that's a bit strange. Then he had some of the Western monks sort of teach him how to do it. Okay, this, this is what they, when they stick their hand out, like this is what they're expecting. And so, uh, so they, he kind of learnt the the technique, um, but he you know, didn't really have any role. No, you know, no monk would be shaking anybody's hand in in Thailand. And very poignantly, um, in the Varapanyo's book, uh, Venerable Father, the Paul Brighter, when he talks about his own very uh, extended effort to try and disrobe, and he kept trying to catch Ajahn Chah with his sort of the opportunity to ask him to disrobe or coming with his tray of offerings and Ajahn Chah managed to kind of completely uh, render him invisible and uh, so that he kept avoiding uh, uh, Varapanyo trying to uh, take leave and, and to disrobe. But uh, anyway, eventually when, when he finally uh, allowed him to, to leave the robes and to go back to lay life, then uh, Varapanyo describes how Ajahn, you know, when he was saying goodbye at Wat Pananachat, that's what where he disrobed, and then Ajahn Chah put his hand out and said, <laughs> "You know, you're a layman now. I can shake your hand." You know, and he stuck his hand out. And it's very, it's very moving. It's like he was so quick to adapt. You know, like he's a different convention. But he said, <laughs> and then he said, "Varapanyas." So I look, I look down at his hand, like, "What am I supposed to do with that?" Oh, right, shake hands. Yeah, he says, "Shake, shake hands." Yeah. And so that uh, they, they did. And so that that, or or like the um, the use of money that we, like right now they're about to um, change the pound coins, so that the 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 new pound coins, the twelve sided ones, are not they're not valid currency yet. In a in a couple of weeks they will be, and then in six months time the old pound coins, and the old five pound notes, the non plastic five pound notes will no longer be legal currency, so they go from being worth five, five pounds to worth nothing or they go from being um, <coughs> you know, from uh, uh, you know, okay, uh, worth nothing to being worth you know, like a new pound coin is worth a pound so people agree okay this is now worth a pound and then it's worth a pound so this is now currently worth five pounds and then by August it'll be not it'll be worth five pounds anymore and you say this is just a human agreement that's all you know you, you, you take this piece of, of paper and you say it's worth this much and if, if everyone agrees it's worth that much it is, <laughs> but it's just a, an agreement. There's no thing really there. The, the piece of paper doesn't actually have that value. It's only it signifies a, a human agreement. So that uh, he he broadened uh, the scope of sila Paramasa beyond uh, religious practices and so religious rituals to uh, more so ones that uh, we we meet every day in society. Um, and uh, because the mind can attach to those and take them absolutely seriously uh, and think, no, this is the way you should do things or you shouldn't do things and get very upset or very excited or, uh, about such things. So the, uh, the first passage comes from uh, Sutta number 78 in the Majima Nikaya. And this is Tanisro Bhikkhu's translation. <clears throat> so, uh, even though precepts and practices form a part of the training, they are a means to the goal of freedom rather than freedom itself. And then the passage reads Now, where do skillful habits cease without trace? Their cessation, too, has been stated. There is the case where a monk is virtuous but is not defined by his virtue. He discerns it as it actually is. The release of awareness and the release of discernment where his skillful habits cease without trace. 
The relinquishing of this fetter does not mean that one no longer has to follow precepts. If anything, one would be even more assiduous as cause and effect are clearly seen and the wish to diminish suffering for oneself and others comes to the fore. The keeping of precepts is then seen as a protection and a blessing for all. So the word assiduous, just in case some of you might not be familiar with that, means more careful or thorough, more precise in uh, keeping the, the, the precepts. So when it says that the, um, the uh, skillful habits cease without trace, it doesn't mean that you stop behaving in a skillful way. It means that the, um, the mind is not attached to that as a, something that's, that's valuable in and of itself or that is something that is um, clung to a, a, and attached to in that way. So it can be, it's one of those those passages that you can read it. So does that mean you're supposed to, if you reach stream entry, you're supposed to stop behaving well, or you're, <laughs> you're supposed to no longer keep the precepts? And it's a, a common theme within some Buddhist schools and, and uh, traditions, or, or and particularly in the modern age, to think, you know, if someone's, quote unquote, if someone's enlightened, then they don't have to keep the rules, or they don't need to keep the precepts there beyond... Um, the, the principles of virtue, they're not, not attached to the, the rules, means you act in a way that sort of defies the, the precepts and principles. And that's, uh, that's uh, very much not the case in the Theravada understanding and uh, approach to things. And that uh, the kind of what they would call a you know, crazy wisdom approach, uh, that uh, when the, the Dalai Lama was asked about this, he said, uh, Your Holiness, what's your opinion about crazy wisdom? I said, what do you mean, crazy wisdom? So, well, you know, if you say if, if someone's enlightened, then they don't have to, to um, you know, keep any of the precepts, that they, they can act as they choose. And he said, this is not wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> it's just crazy. <laughs> so I was there when he said it, so it was, it was very... And this look on his face was like... <laughs> it's not, that's not wisdom at all. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of phrasing it. And it's also, um, it's related to that, that teaching that I quoted a, f a few weeks ago, where um, how the Arahant is incapable of breaking the precepts, which um, is in the Book of the Nines, uh, in the Anguttara Nikaya, book, uh, Sutta number seven and Sutta number eight in the Book of the Nines in the Anguttara. And <coughs> it says, uh, uh, someone who's enlightened... So it's, it goes completely counter to that crazy wisdom, you know, like a, an, an enlightened being can get drunk or have multiple boyfriends, girlfriends, and, uh, and so forth. That uh, rather, it says, if someone's enlightened, they are phys they are incapable of taking the life of another creature deliberately. <coughs> they are incapable of stealing anything or taking what is not given. They are they are uh, incapable of sexual intercourse. They don't in engage in any kind of sexual activity. Um, they are incapable of lying. They, they, can't, they can't say anything that's untrue. And then the fifth precept, uh, interestingly enough, is not about avoiding alcohol and, and drugs, but uh, it's that, that the fifth principle is that they can't uh, lay up a, a store or, or put things aside for the future. 
They won't sort of keep things for later. Ooh, I have one, oh, yeah, let's keep that for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. An arahant can't think like that. And so that it, and the way that it's phrased in that sutta, I didn't bring the copy along today, but the way it's phrased in that sutta is that it's like when one has reached enlightenment, then it's like that's the natural disposition. There's no kind of rule being kept. It's like the tongue can't form an untruth. The, the hand can't deliberately move to harm another being. It's like it, it won't work. It can't. It won't operate like that, and so that um, when uh, uh, the point that, that Ajahn Pasano makes here, that one will be even more assiduous rather than um, than uh, being more careless, it's like that. That's exactly the case. Is that it's um, there's more and more of a sensitivity to the the way that your words or your actions are going to affect the people around you, yeah, affect the other beings around you, and that if you do do something that um, that harms another being, even if it's accidental, then there's this very painful feeling. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Didn't mean to say that to hurt your feelings. I didn't mean to, to uh, to harm you. In that way, and so that uh, um, the the letting go of convention or, get, or getting uh, getting beyond convention, it's not a matter of defying conventions or not following the forms, but not. Uh, uh, Taking them to be something that's valuable or meaningful in and of itself, and so the, so that oftentimes when when people come across this uh, sort of um, not a, not being attached to rites and rituals, then particularly in the in the in the West in the sort of um, the kind of countercultural uh, approach towards Buddhism and the, the kind of um, yeah true wisdom, true you know true Zen or true um, true enlightenment is sort of Beyond all the rules and conventions, and sort of that, uh, and they like this idea of the sort of crazy wisdom: do whatever you like, and you know, <clears throat> say, well, you just, just, I'm just being angry Buddha, you know, I'm just being lazy Buddha, <laughs> just being, just being selfish Buddha. That's all, you know. And it's a, it's a, the, it's a nice idea, but it's basically the defilements and, and self-view have just hijacked the, the person's. Uh, capacity to act, and it's got this excuse of, well, it's all in the cause of wisdom. Right? This is enlightened activity. It's just if you if you don't appreciate that I'm enlightened, that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> and so, oftentimes, you you get uh, people who are sort of self-proclaimed enlightened beings. And you know, I lived in California for a long time, so it's <laughs> <laughs> quite a few. <laughs> they tend to ke- keep away from us rule-keeping traditionalist types, but uh, they are around. You know. Also, I, I I don't know where I read that, whether it's in the suttas or it's just a commentary, that Sotapanas can't even can't lie, white lies. They can't even to save their lives. They can't because they don't. They're not attached to the body. It wouldn't occur to them to lie to save their lives or to kill somebody mm-hmm. to save their lives. I don't think that's in the suttas, but certainly uh, in terms of an arahant, I mean, those those two suttas in the Book of the Nines, Sutta Seven and Sutta Eight, that talks about that an arahant that they 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 just can't do that. It's just they they can't they can't tell a lie. It doesn't mean to say that they they won't let. I mean, you get a few examples in the suttas where the Buddha lets people misunderstand him. Yeah, so it's like he's not telling an untruth, but he he doesn't explain his own intentions. I mean, there's this. Um, 
there's this uh, incident where he and, and another monk are walking on Tudong, they're kind of walking through the countryside, and they get to this fork in the road, and uh, <clears throat> they're on their way to Rajagaha, and uh, the Buddha sort of goes by the left-hand fork, and the, the monk says, excuse me, Venerable Sir, um, this is the road to Rajagaha, and the Buddha said, no friend, this is the road to Rajagaha, and then the monk says, Venerable Sir, you know, please excuse me, but you know, I've been this way many times, this is the road to Rajagaha. And the Buddha said, no friend, this is the road to Rajagaha. And of course they do it three times over, being a, a Buddhist story. <clears throat> and so then, eventually the monk says, well, I'm, you know, uh, however you like it, Venerable Sir. And, he, and, he, and he'd been carrying the Buddha's bowl, and he, and he takes the Buddha's bowl and gives it to him and says, you know, well, you can go whichever way you like, I'm going to Rajagaha. <laughs> so... You think, oh man, this is going to be painful. <laughs> and so, of course, that uh, the uh, the the monk goes off down what he thinks is the road to Rajagaha. He gets attacked by bandits, gets beaten up, <laughs> bowl gets broken, his robes get torn, and then he <clears throat> makes his way through the countryside and meets up with the, with the Buddha on the other road. And <laughs> and the Buddha didn't say, this is the better road to go because if we go down that way, we're going to get attacked by bandits. So he let the other monk misunderstand. You know, Make, the, make his own choice. So the Buddha could have said, um, and the reason why I'm saying this is because, but he doesn't. He lets, the other monk, he lets the monk go down that road and get beaten up. So sometimes the, the, there's a, um, the Buddha's not lying, but he doesn't tell the whole story <laughs> in order to, for someone to, uh, to learn something that they maybe wouldn't learn if, they, if he spelled it all out. So you do get those, those instances where the Buddha allows himself to be misunderstood, which is, uh, <clears throat> and you think, why didn't he explain it? But then you can see that, well, you know that monk is never going to forget that lesson. <laughs> okay, if you're, if you're traveling with a Buddha, trust his word. You know, <laughs> because that, you know, that you, you, it's very rare in the world you get to be close to a Buddha, let there be a Buddha's attendant. So, if that happens again, make sure you trust the enlightened being. So anyway, to continue. So the keeping of precepts is then seen as a protection and a blessing for all. The insight into the ways that identity view are an obstruction to freedom opens the way for the recognition of the limitations of the next two fetters. When the misperception of identity view is cleared, the heart is freed from endless doubts as to what is suitable, what is a suitable refuge. It chooses instead the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha as its refuge. What follows is probably the most common and consistent description of the stream-enterer in the canon. The four qualities of faith in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha and the establishing of a firm foundation in virtue are mentioned again and again as the stream-enterer's hallmark characteristics. But, as we will see, there are other characteristics as well. So the, up to now he's been talking about the, um, the characteristics as defined as the, those first three fetters, self-view, doubt as to what is the path and what's not the path, and then uh, attachment to uh, rules and conventions. But then uh, when, a, when someone is described as being a stream-enterer, more often than not, then the characteristics are, uh, that are, are used to define that, that's, that uh, realization is unwavering faith in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, and uh, 
and the uh, purity of virtue. So this is from Sutta number uh, one in the <coughs> section 55 of the Connected Discourses. Because, although a wheel-turning monarch, having exercised supreme sovereign rulership over the four continents, with the breakup of the body after death, is reborn in a good destination in the heavenly world, in the company of devas of the Tavatinsa heaven, and there in the Nandana grove, accompanied by a retinue of celestial nymphs, enjoys himself supplied and endowed with the, fi the five cords of sensual, celestial sensual pleasure. Still, as he does not possess four things, he is not freed from hell, the animal realm, and the domain of ghosts, not freed from the plane of misery, the bad destinations, the nether world. So that's one extreme. So if uh, you've been the ruler of the world and then you're reborn in a heavenly realm, um, you're still subject to, to uh, the, the dangers of rebirth in the lower realms. Then he says, Although Bhikkhus, a noble disciple, maintains himself by lumps of alms food and wears rag robes, still, as he possesses four things, he is freed from hell, the animal realm, and the domain of ghosts, freed from the plane of misery, the bad destinations, the nether world. What other four? Here Bhikkhus, the noble disciple, possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha thus. The Blessed One is an Arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct. Fortunate, knower of the world, unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the blessed one. He possesses confirmed confidence in the Dhamma thus. The Dhamma is well expounded by the blessed one, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable to be personally experienced by the wise. He possesses confirmed confidence in the Sangha, thus. The Sangha of the Blessed One's disciples is practicing the good way, practicing the straight way, practicing the true way, practicing the proper way. That is, the four pairs of persons, the eight types of individuals. The Sangha of the Blessed One's disciples is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation. The unsurpassed field of merit for the world. So those, uh, as you will recognize, these are the very standard uh, descriptions of Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha that we recite pretty much daily. And that mysterious phrase, the four pairs, the eight types of individuals, that is the um, uh, describing the four stages of realization. So the, the pairs are those who are on the way to stream, on the path to stream entry and who have realized the fruit of stream entry. It's the first pair. Second pair are those who are on the on the path to being a once-returner and then having realized the fruit of being a once-returner. That's the second pair. Then one who is on the way to uh, becoming a uh, uh, non-returner, anagami, and then one who has realized the fruit of non-return is uh, the third pair. And then the fourth pair, on the, one is on the path to arahantship and then one who has realized uh, the full enlightenment of arahantship. So those are the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings. Is that? what that, that particular phrase means. And then the fourth factor, the fourth uh, thing that that person possesses, uh, is he possesses the virtues dear to the noble ones, unbroken, untorn, unblemished, unmottled, freeing, praised by the wise, ungrasped, leading to concentration. He possesses these four things, and bhikkhus, between the obtaining of sovereignty over the four continents and obtaining the four things, 
the obtaining of sovereignty over the four continents is not worth a sixteenth part of obtaining the four things. So being the ruler of the world, being the uh, president of the United States or the, the Queen of England or the, uh, the uh, empress of the, the whole planet, that is not worth one sixteenth part of uh, these uh, four qualities. And as he says, you've got this one image of um, being the ruler of the world uh, and having this um, uh, rebirth in a really pleasant heavenly realm on the one hand, or just living on alms food, wearing rag robes in the most kind of um, uh, you know, lowest standard of living, you're actually far, far better off. As he says, to be the, the, the most powerful person on the planet is, is not worth one sixteenth part of having realized these, uh, these four particular qualities. And then in the next sutta, sutta number two in this uh, same section, he says, Because a noble disciple who possesses these four things is a stream enterer, no longer bound to the nether world, fixed in destiny, with enlightenment as his destination. And uh, um, uh, that uh, section 55 is the connected discourses about stream entry, I believe, if I remember correctly. So that, that um, it's also, if you notice, when he's talking about the, uh, uh, the perfection of virtue, as he says, he possesses the virtues dear to the noble ones, unbroken, untorn, unblemished, unmottled, freeing, praised by the wise, and ungrasped, leading to concentration. So the precepts are freeing, they're liberating, and they are ungrasped, so that it's right in that it's talking about the use of sila, but without grasping it, so that you're not... Um, Say judging yourself or how well you keep the rules, or you're judging other people that oh uh, you know I keep the rules better than she does, or or he's much more strict than I am. That there's uh, that the mind is free from grasping and um, identifying with the, the precepts, and as as Ajahn Pasna was saying on that um, uh, previous section, uh, previous paragraphs, he said the keeping of precepts is then seen as a protection and a blessing for all. So the, the uh, and uh, there's another quotation in relationship to this about about the precepts where the Buddha calls them the five great gifts, which is a, 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 another way of, of understanding. Oftentimes, when we think of the precepts, we think of this list of things that we can't do. But just as we were talking about this this um, teaching from the Book of the Nines, um, where the Buddha says, if one's totally enlightened, it's, you're incapable of harming another being. You can't deliberately take life. Um, it's the natural disposition of the heart. That when the heart is, is, is totally liberated, free from all delusion, it can't wish to kill another being. It's not, it's not in the repertoire. It's, it's impossible. So a rule isn't being kept. It's like there's, there's no inclination there. There's no capacity there. Uh, an arahant can't tell a lie. They can't, they, they can't tell a falsehood. Um, and so it's not like, oh, I want to tell a lie, but oh, oh dear, I'm, you know, I'm an arahant, so I'm not allowed to. <laughs> you know, dang, you know, or oh, that person's really attractive. I, you know, I wonder what they're doing tonight. Oh, damn, I'm an arahant. <laughs> Ruined my chances there. What an idiot, you know. And um, that it's not that way at all. It's just, uh, it's that, like the example. I, I grew up riding horses and, and um, living on a farm. Horses are vegetarians, as you know. <laughs> So if, you, if a horse smells, um, smells food with meat in it, or, uh, then it's, it's not interested. If you, if you offer it a carrot or an apple, it'll be really interested. If you offer it a hamburger, it'll sniff 
and then it just turns away. It's like, it's not food. To a horse, a hamburger is not food. It's not averse, it's not upset, it's just like, can't eat that. <laughs> it's like, you know, just show me an apple, come on. Yeah. <laughs> give, me a, give me a carrot. Yeah. But it's, it's like in the exact same way, that, uh, and it's not that the horse is saying, oh, I'd really like that hamburger, but damn, you know, I've, got a, I've got this vegetarian rule that, that I have to keep. It's like, it's not that, it's just like, it's not food. It's like, well, okay, you're holding this thing in your hand, so, so what? Yeah. You will. In Iceland, where they have very little hay, the Iceland ponies get fed with fish. Can they digest it? And obviously they can. I mean, I, that's I have heard. I don't that's you have heard. I have to look that up. I never heard of that before. Well, the ponies I grew up with. <laughs> <laughs> I never offered them any fish fingers with those. My experience was that uh, they, uh, they're, there's this kind of turning away. They sort of, you know, and they're, you know, they're, they're often yeah, horses like, like other animals. They're kind of often looking for something interesting to, to to eat. And but then if they kind of sniff in your picnic basket, then they, you know, it's not interesting. They might try and take the bun and leave the rest. <laughs> but anyway, it's interesting to know. So that then, uh, so it's, it's important to understand that. And there also, there's another very um, beautiful teaching that's called the Upposita Sutta, where the Buddha talks about how he establishes the eight precepts as a standard for, for lay people's training. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's an unusual sutta in that he's not talking to anybody else, it's just recounting his own internal reflection, his own consideration. <clears throat> and um, it's early on in his teaching career. And it's before he's established many uh, of the sort of practices and traditions that he did during his lifetime. And so he's considering, he said, well, the other religious groups, they gather together on the moon days and they have their own particular rituals and ceremonies and um, kind of festivals or ways that they gather uh, together one, you know, once a week on the, on the lunar quarters. So what would be a good thing for, for my students, you know, these disciples of mine, what would, they, what would it be good for them to gather around and to do uh, on these moon days? Because people are saying, can we get together and, and, uh, and uh, have some kind of um, observance? And then the, the Buddha considers, well, he said, all their lives, you know, uh, an arahant, from the time of their enlightenment, they never deliberately take the life of another being. Uh, wouldn't it be a useful thing for the lay community one day a week if they adopt that standard, and then they'll be living as the Arahants do, and that will be for their long-term welfare and happiness. And then so too with the other, uh, uh, all, all their lives, you know, from the time of enlightenment, the Arahant will never deliberately take anything that's not given, or they won't engage in any kind of sexual activity. They won't, take, uh, uh, they won't uh, tell a falsehood. And, uh, and so through the, with the, eight, the rest of the eight precepts, they wouldn't use intoxicants, they, wouldn't eat, uh, they only eat in one part of the day, and they don't use entertainments and, and, um, and distractions. And they sleep, they use a, a, a simple sleeping place. And so, um, so wouldn't it be a useful thing if the lay, lay people, they adopt that standard, and then uh, they, are, they will be living as the Arahants do, and that will be for their long-lasting welfare and happiness. So by living by that standard... 
you, you kind of you, you adopt it as a behavior. Like, okay, you get, you know the, it is a, a thing that you're doing, but then by adopting it by okay for today I'm not going to tell any lies. For today I'm not going to eat in the afternoon or the evening. Today you know I'm going to dress in. I'm going to take off my jewelry and I'm not going to seek entertainment. Um, and then having adopted that behavior, then there's a, 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 a greater capacity to recognize in your heart. Well, actually, I don't really need supper. Huh. What a surprise. <laughs> it's evening and I'm not even hungry. Wow, that's strange. Or like, oh yeah, I don't really need to be to dressing myself up trying to be attractive to other people. Or I don't need to be... Um, I feel so much better if I don't you know, lie or deceive other people. <sighs> and then having adopted that behavior and they feel that sense of, oh, that's, this is really nice. Then the behavior then awakens that intuition of... Of, uh, of the kind of goodness or comfort or the, the beautiful quality of those, uh, the effects of those behaviors. And so then, and as the Buddha said, it's for their long-lasting welfare and happiness. So that's um, as a significant uh, way, a, a different way of relating to the precepts rather than um, a list of things that I, I can't do, that I'd really like to. You say, say, no, if you listen to your heart of hearts, there's that in you which is totally non-violent. There is that in you which is completely honest. So one day a week, why don't you listen to that? <laughs> one day a week, you don't need to be attractive or interesting or to be engaging other people in, in sort of uh, in uh, sexual ways, or you don't need to be trying to um, amuse yourself. You can just choose simplicity, you know, and then see what the effect of that is. So that it's, in a sense, listening to your heart of hearts, whether there's part of you that doesn't need to be entertained doesn't need to be distracted, doesn't need to be attractive. <sighs> like so many people, when they, they like to come and visit the monastery or stay in the monastery, simply because of the relief of not having to perform. And many years ago, there was a very dignified lady who used to come and visit Chithurst, and she'd, she'd, um, her husband was the British ambassador to Japan, so she lived in this very kind of high society world, and she, and she had a very... Um, a sort of cut glass English accent, so Cheltenham Ladies College accent, <laughs> and very memorably, she said you know, one day, you know, she said, "I so love coming to Chithurst <laughs> because here I can be a potato." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Her voice was like that, and, and she, you could just feel like, oh, I don't have to be the ambassador's wife. Oh, this is so great. And I can just eat my meal off a, off a kind of plastic plate you know, or out of, a, you know, out of the frying pan because there aren't enough plates to go around and can drink tea out of a cup with a broken handle. <sighs> bliss. What bliss, yeah. Okay, so to continue. It cannot be overemphasized that, quote, confirmed confidence, unquote, in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha plays a key role both in the suttas, which use this template over and over again in the reference to entering the stream, and within the mind itself. Throughout this chapter, this factor will keep reappearing in many different ways. The repetition of these qualities is so consistent in the canon that attention will be drawn to its significance by including several references to it throughout the text. Internally, such confirmed confidence is not just a new belief, or a fleeting faith that arises in the heart of the practitioner. 
It's a radical change, a going beyond doubt that the external world and the internal universe are not a suitable refuge for one seeking an end to suffering. The faith in Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha is based on a clear understanding of the benefits of relinquishing desire and ignorance and truly relying on awakened knowing, truth and virtue. The full implications of this faith may not be totally understood at this entry point, but the heart has seen and knows that this is the way forward <coughs> and that the stream of Dhamma being entered is true. And the, the reason why uh, Ajahn Pasano here is using the, um, uh, the phrase relying on awakened knowing, truth and virtue is that the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, um, he, uh, this is a sort of traditional customary way of, of talking about these, uh, these three qualities, the triple gem, but, so, uh, but each one of those has an external and an internal uh, say representation. So the Buddha, uh, obviously, uh, represents uh, externally Gautama Buddha, the founder of this religious form, this tradition, who lived two and a half thousand years ago. But the internal aspect of, the, of Buddha, and uh, Buddha as a refuge, which, uh, again, Ajahn Chah would very often emphasize, is that the, the Buddha means uh, the one who is awake, or that which is aware, uh, so the the term buddhi is like awakened awareness or awakened intelligence. So to um, to have confirmed confidence in the Buddha is to recognize it's good to be awake. It's uh, to choose to be awake rather than to be snoozing through life. To to choose to be aware and to know rather than to switch off or to to um, take refuge in a particular you know, opinion or a mood. Then uh, the, um, the quality of Dhamma uh, not only means the Buddha's teaching, but it means the, the reality of the way things are, the way nature works. The, 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 uh, so taking refuge in Dhamma is not just trusting the Buddha's teaching, but it's attuning your, your mind, your heart to the natural order. Essentially it's, it's choosing realism, being realistic. So laying aside your opinion of how things should be or could be or ought to be or your judgments of of what you prefer or what you think is fair or what you like and just well it, it's whether I like it or not it's this way <laughs> whether that person should or shouldn't be doing that that's just what they've done you know, whether the world should be or shouldn't be this way it is this way and if it shouldn't be this way it wouldn't be this way so here it is so taking refuge in Dhamma is not just trusting the Buddha's words but it's just like a radical realism uh, that uh, is a readiness to attune the heart to the way life is. And then refuge in Sangha. Sangha means, the, um, as you said, the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings. So the trusting the, the qualities and the, um, the, so the, the presence and the example of those who have awakened to these truths at various different levels. But Sangha as an internal quality, you can reflect on it in different ways. Uh, so uh, Lumpo Sumedho would often say uh, the choosing virtue or acting virtuously is, is uh, the internal quality of, of uh, taking refuge in Sangha. That in the heart. And, and an easy way of, refer of referring to this or relating to this that I find is, that is also accurate is to, to take refuge in Sangha is to listen to that voice in your heart that loves the good even if when it doesn't want to, <laughs> even when it would prefer to be selfish or lazy or, or uh, aggressive, it says, 
I don't really need to do that. Or I don't really need one more of those. You know, uh, okay, I can leave that alone. So to take refuge in Sangha is... Um, so when it says choosing virtue, it's not again like to taking the rules and following the rules as a, an external activity, but rather it's that that quality in your heart which is which loves uh, the wholesome, the, the noble, and the uh, that which is um, say respectful of of life and, and other beings. So that um, when we talk about confirmed confidence in Buddha Dharma and Sangha, it might be that you actually do have confirmed confidence in those qualities, but you've never even heard of Buddhism or Buddhist teachings. That that could be totally familiar territory to you, but you've never opened a Buddhist book or met a Buddhist teacher. That you, know, you could revere wake, being awake, wakefulness, and, re- and being uh, in tune with, with reality, with nature, and you can truly love the good, but yet not think of it in terms of Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. So that I would say, it might sound a bit heretical, but I'd say that you can have confirmed confidence in Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha without really having, without, without, without being aware that it's Buddhism. <laughs> you, you have your own language of it, your own way of expressing it, and, and so relating to those qualities without knowing um, what it, you, that it's got a connection with uh, the Buddhist tradition. And so it's not uncommon for people to, uh, and it happens all the time when people come to visit or come on retreats and they say, well, I thought this way my whole life. And then I read this Buddhist book and I realized, oh, I'm a Buddhist. Wow, look at that. Like, like Lumpur Sumedha says uh, exactly that. He's a, he tried to be a very faithful, devout Christian. He even went to, to um, study to be a, um, started his studies to be a Christian minister when he was uh, in his uh, late teens. He really, really tried to, to, to be a good uh, Episcopalian Christian, but uh, he had too many doubts and, and too many struggles and then when he was in the U.S. Navy uh, on the ship between uh, the west coast of the U.S. And, and Japan in the Korean War period, uh, he, was, uh, he was given a, a copy of uh, D.T. Suzuki's, one of D.T. Suzuki's early books on, on Zen Buddhism. He said he read you know, two par- less than two paragraphs, you know, on halfway down the first page, and he said, I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> oh. That's why it was so difficult to be a Christian. Like, I'm a Buddhist. Oh. And it was just like there. You know, he there was right there in the first couple of paragraphs, all these principles were just spelled out. Oh, of course. Huh. And then and then realized, oh, this is spelling out what I've thought my whole life. All right, so I guess I'm a Buddhist. Well, look at that. It's interesting. So it's not an uncommon experience. So that um the uh, the familiarity with the terminology or the tradition is not the key thing. It's the the sense of the the importance or the value of those qualities of uh, awakened knowing, truth, and virtue uh, as being the, um, uh, the the principal aspects of it. And then that quality of the the um, possessing, as it says, the virtues dear to the noble ones for for a stream entry that. If if you want to be awake, you, you choose wakefulness, you're choosing to be in tune with reality, you're choosing to listen to that voice which loves the good, that means you actually act that way. <laughs> and that, uh, that informs your words, your actions, and your, your way of relating to the, the planet. So the following sutta gathers in one place some of the different characteristics and qualities of a sotapanna. That is, the commitment to virtue, faith, and to the wisdom that understands the true nature of things. 
The mention of observing dependent origination for oneself shows that the sotapanna relies exclusively on seeing Dhamma rather than on an external method, ritual, ceremony or vows. The sutta gives us a, a perspective on what a person who sees the Dhamma actually sees. The results and workings of Kamma and the mind and the mind that convinced the person that virtue is an essential element of a life well lived, that the virtues of the refuges are incomparable. Thus the stream-enterer is able to be free of the fetters and is established in the refuges, not through blind belief, but through the penetration of truth. So this is a fairly uh, uh, long uh, quote, and it's from Sutta number 41 in the Connected Discourses about uh, Causation, section 12. So before I read this, any particular questions, thoughts, clarifications? Okay, very good. Let me, he allowed people to misunderstand him from time to time. Yes, very helpful. <laughs> yeah, being misunderstood is a very important practice. <laughs> being misrepresented and misunderstood, these are advanced practices. <laughs> <laughs> to not jump in and straighten it out. But, 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 but I didn't mean that. Oh, no, no, don't, don't think that of me. I'm, I'm not that way. <laughs> to let people misrepresent you and misunderstand you. It's a very, very sophisticated <laughs> Dhamma practice. Is that uh, in accordance with? I heard one of Ajahn's, I wouldn't mention, but uh, he says nobody teach you ignorance. Is that in uh, accordance with what Ajahn Sundar said? Nobody, well, the. From, from the Ajahn's, you will never meet someone who teaches. Uh, well, Ajahn Chah used to say that, and he said, I, particularly in reference to people with, with criticizing, um, say, uh, what they saw in Thailand in terms of people being uh, dishonest or, um, you know, the people having their, being robbed in the cities or, or the amount of prostitution in Thailand and, and uh, or people being... Um, so greedy and aggressive, and uh, and and uh, you know these these people are supposed to be Buddhists. How can they you know how can they be thieves or you know how can they be uh, dishonest in this way? And Ajahn Chah's response would be, well, I don't teach them to do those things. <laughs> 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 they're doing those things because they're not listening to what I say. <laughs> so it's a very good answer. Okay, so this is. Uh, at Savati. Then the householder Anattapindika approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him and sat down to one side. The Blessed One then said to him, Householder, when five fearful animosities have subsided in a noble disciple, and he possesses the four factors of stream entry, and he has clearly seen and thoroughly penetrated with wisdom the noble method, if he wishes, he could by himself declare of himself 
I am one finished with hell, finished with the animal realm, finished with the domain of ghosts, finished with the plane of misery, the bad destinations, the nether world. I'm a stream enterer, no longer bound to the nether world, fixed in destiny with enlightenment as my destination. And that phrase, fearful animosities, the five fearful animosities, is a, 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 a term that pops up here and there. And the Pali is Bayani Verani, if you're interested. The five fearful animosities. So the five things that are um, uh, frightening and t- animosities mean tied up with conflict or um, contention. Uh, that are things that are, are threatening. The five um, Bayani Verani. What are the five fearful animosities that have subsided? Householder. One who destroys life engenders, on account of such behavior, fearful animosity pertaining to the present life and fearful animosity pertaining to the future life, and he experiences mental pain and displeasure. Thus, for one who abstains from destroying life, this fearful animosity has subsided. (coughs) So if you act in that, that way, if you kill things, then you are creating the causes for that fearful uh, animosity, that sense of stress and tension uh, and contention within the heart. And then similarly with the other uh, five precepts. One who who takes what is not given, one who engages in sexual misconduct, one who speaks falsely, and one who indulges in wine, liquor and intoxicants that are the basis for negligence, engenders on account of such behavior fearful animosity pertaining to the present life and fearful animosity pertaining to the future life, and he experiences mental pain and displeasure. Thus, for one who abstains from wine, liquor and intoxicants, and the other precepts, that are a basis for negligence, this fearful animosity has subsided. These are the five fearful animosities that have subsided. What are the four factors of stream entry that he possesses? Here, householder, the noble disciple, possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha, thus... The Blessed One is an Arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct. Fortunate, knower of the world, unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed. The teacher of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the Blessed One. He possesses confirmed confidence in the Dhamma, thus. The Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One. Directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable, to be personally experienced by the wise. He possesses confirmed confidence in the Sangha, thus. The Sangha of the Blessed One's disciples is practicing the good way, practicing the straight way, practicing the true way, practicing the proper way. That is, the four pairs of persons, the eight types of individuals, this Sangha of the Blessed One's disciples is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation, the unsurpassed field of merit for the world. He possesses the virtues dear to the noble ones, unbroken, untorn, unblemished, unmottled, freeing, praised by the wise, ungrasped, leading to concentration. These are the four factors of stream entry that he possesses. And what is the noble method that he is clearly seen and thoroughly penetrated with wisdom? Here, householder, the noble disciple, attends closely and carefully to dependent origination itself in this way. Thus, when this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, 
that does not come to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. That is, with ignorance as condition, volitional formations come to be. And so too with, so, uh, too with the, uh, all the twelve links of the dependent origination cycle. Volitional formations uh, as condition consciousness. Consciousness as condition uh, nama rupa, mind and body. Mind and body as condition the six senses. The six senses as condition feeling. Feeling as condition craving. Craving as condition clinging. Clinging as condition becoming. Becoming as condition birth. Birth as condition, then uh, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. But with the remainderless fading away and cessation of ignorance comes the cessation of volitional formations. With the cessation of volitional formations, cessation of consciousness, so on and so forth, all the way through to such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. This is the noble method that he has clearly seen and thoroughly penetrated with wisdom. When householder, these five fearful animosities have subsided in a noble disciple, and he possesses these four factors of stream entry, and he's clearly seen and thoroughly penetrated with wisdom, this noble method, if he wishes, he could by himself declare of himself, I am one finished with hell, finished with the animal realm, finished with the domain of ghosts, finished with the plane of misery, the bad destinations, the nether world. I'm a stream enterer, no longer bound to the nether world, fixed in destiny with enlightenment as my destination. So that uh, is a fairly comprehensive teaching, but uh, essentially with these, uh, uh, say, the, the establishment of the heart in virtue, in uh, being free of these five fearful animosities, the uh, payani verani, the, and then with the, uh, the four factors of stream entry, faith in Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha established, and then the the insight into the uh, the nature of dependent origination the arising uh, where uh, the means whereby uh, ignorance leads to craving and craving leads to to dukkha to discontent suffering and how that is brought to a an end and those are the, the you know the key factors that support stream entry so that this um this phrase, the five fearful animosities, is also is closely related to this uh, other teaching where the Buddha speaks of the five precepts as the five great gifts, the Mahadana. And that's um, in the, uh, again in the Book of the Eights, um, in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Numerical Discourses, Sutta number 39, if you want to look it up. And um, it's eight because the first three are faith in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. So these are called the eight streams of merit. And so he says, when, when you want to, or if you wish your heart to be, to be filled with this quality of brightness, of blessing, of, um, and uh, experience the, the qualities of, of punya, uh, that sense of spiritual completeness, <coughs> wholeness, um, then uh, there are these eight sort of streams that, you know, that feed into that, that quality of wholeness or fullness. The eight streams of merit. So the first three are faith in the Buddha, and faith in the Dhamma, and faith in the Sangha, and then the 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 last five uh, are the five precepts. But the way he talks about them in that particular sutta, he says uh, the uh, the five uh, these five precepts are the five great gifts, Mahadana, and they're great. They're gifts 
because one who refrains from taking the life of other living creatures, they, uh, um, they grant, they give immeasurable freedom from fear, freedom from animosity, um, uh, and uh, freedom from affliction to countless beings. So when you've taken the principle of not harming anything, nobody has to be afraid of you. Not even any creatures, not even any animals need to be afraid of you. So that if you spend time in any of our, our monasteries and you you uh, uh, you uh, say walk through the forest or like at Chittas, they used to have lots and lots of rabbits uh, uh, roaming around in the gardens. And uh, I don't know if they, it goes through phases, but uh, sometimes the, the rabbits would they would hardly even look at you when you walk by. They knew that these the humans are not dangerous. Foxes and dogs, yes, but the humans, they would sort of be just nibbling away at the grass and they kind of look up and you go, morning. Yeah. <laughs> and, just, and that was it. In a Bayagiri in California, the deer would come and, lit, and literally just sort of be grazing, or browsing some of the, you know, the plants around the buildings. Sometimes even coming up onto the deck outside, the, like on the veranda, to, to uh, ch- chomp on the house plants. Yeah. And yeah, they kind of give you a little bit of a, a, a sort of a glance. And they, you, are you okay? But they basically they want to get back to their eating and not particularly bothered about the people at, at all whereas people with guns <laughs> you know over at the next uh, on the next property then they would be very very shy and would would, uh, would hide away but um this abhayadana the, the giving of fearlessness is a uh, uh, the buddha said this is a superior kind of generosity to they're the giving of material gifts. So the amisadana is the giving of material offerings. Um, but he said abhayadana, the giving of fearlessness, is a is a, a more kind of superior, a more wholesome, a more expansive kind of generosity. And so that uh, he says, you know, one who is um, uh, say not taking anything that is not given to them, that doesn't steal anything. Similarly, they give uh, immeasurable freedom from animosity, freedom from fear, freedom from affliction to countless beings. People don't have to be worried that you're going to take anything from them. They don't have to protect their stuff around you. You don't have to to lock up your... People staying here as a guest don't have to lock their things away. (laughs) uh, You you can trust the other people that that you're living with. Like in the the world, this is a a rare thing that you have to... You know, lock your car, lock your house, lock your uh, 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 everything away because you don't know what's going to uh, what people are going to do with your things. So, you're in the in this way. The Buddha is talking about the keeping of the precepts as a kind of field of fearlessness that you create. You're you're generating this uh, like a what do you call the, the field of blessings, a punyaketa. You're generating a, like a, a almost like an energy field. Like people, beings around you, then don't need to be afraid for their lives. They don't need be, to be afraid for their property. You're not going to take advantage of them sexually. You're not going to kind of uh, lie to them or cheat on them or, or misuse them in any way. You're not going to uh, uh, to deceive them uh, in terms of telling untruths. And that uh, and when you are when you refrain from uh, taking drugs and alcohol that cause uh, negligence. Then people need to be even less afraid of you. <laughs> you know that uh, just the simple rules of the road that, uh, you know, that anyone who's had a few drinks they become far more dangerous. You know on the road. And those of us who have consumed alcohol in the past, 
speakers having consumed large quantities for a few years in my, in my youth, you will know that it's a lot easier to do things when you've had a few drinks that you would never dream of doing when you hadn't had a few drinks. You're, the, you're much more free with your tongue, what you say and what you do. Uh, and that's, in a way, why you drink, <laughs> is to be um, more uh, heedless in your activity and more un, unhindered. And so that, um, that uh, the, uh, the understanding of the precepts, rather than a set of limitations of things that you, again, that are fencing you in, what you really want to do, it's a, it's a, a whole different way of, of relating to the precepts. It's, like, it's actually a gift to the people around you. that They don't, need, they don't have to worry about you. You're not, you don't want to get anything from them. You don't want them to be a particular way. They don't have to be anything for you. You're not trying to get... You're not going to take advantage of them. They're not going to, you're not going to hurt them in any way. So beings, other people around you, can, they can relax. They can be at ease. You're creating a zone of safety, a zone of, of trust, uh, like a field of blessings, a punya keta. So that it's, it's not just a, a figure of speech, uh, the field of blessings, it's, it's the actuality. That, uh, and that's what a monastery endeavors to be, that same kind of a zone of safety, a zone of, of blessing that people can come here and they can, you can all be potatoes. <laughs> so I don't want to, I want to be a special kind of potato. <laughs> I'm not just a, I'm a kind of unique sort of potato. Yeah, if you want to be a unique potato, you can. But uh, It's a great relief to not have to perform or be somebody. Oftentimes when people come and do, uh, on meditation retreats, just the, the, the standard of noble silence is a great blessing because you don't have to be anyone, you don't have to engage, you don't have to kind of perform as a person. You can just be blob number five, row three. <sighs> I don't have to be impressive, I don't have to be charming, I don't have to be interesting, I don't have to be, I don't have to be intelligent. Yeah. What I have to remember is where I left my shoes. Yeah. And am I on the washing up rotor today? That's all, you know, the rest is, is extra. What a relief! And so that uh, the um, uh, this um, phrase of the five fearful animosities is a kind of uh, high octane sort of charged term, but it, it's it's helpful because it's like if you are killing things or you're lying to people or you're you're flirting with people or trying to or deceiving your partners or you're you're you um, blurring your senses through drugs and alcohol then you're, you're creating a zone of fear that people should be worried about you. Like you, you can't be trusted or that you, know, you are after <coughs> their things or you do want to get something from them. You do want them to, to see you in a particular way or to, you want to, to get them to, to do something or you want to get something from them. And So then you're creating causes of fear and, and tension and stress so that uh, to be free of those animosities, those tensions and, and conflicts, then by adopting the, the precepts and living in that way, you're freeing the heart from that. So, and, and as he says in that, in that, the streams of merit, the eight streams of merit, uh, that not only do you free immeasurable beings from animosity, from, uh, from fear and from affliction, you free yourself from those things as well. It's like, it works both ways. That uh, It's not just the, the zone of safety applies to the others, but you feel really at ease. And so oftentimes, when you are harmless uh, and you are non-violent, when you're around violent people, 
then you're not putting out the signals of like, okay, you, you're having a go at me, right, well, just you wait, you know. <laughs> that it's, it's kind of amazing that, um, that when you are committed to harmlessness, sometimes when people come at you in, aggressive, in an aggressive way, and I've known people do this, and some, uh, a, a friend of ours who was um, attacked on a, a railway platform, you know, like half past 10, 11 o'clock at night, in this sort of dark railway platform in London, and uh, <clears throat> this this sort of big guy came up to uh, attack her. She just said, "No." <laughs> and this, and she wasn't afraid. And she just said, "No, uh, I'm not. I'm not going along with this." And she, this this guy is like twice her size. She was quite a petite little character. This guy is twice her size. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and it was like a, a mirror for his his own kind of aggressiveness, and it, because. And she said, actually, I was just tired. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a non-violent type, but I was also just, I'd had a long day. And, uh, and, and she said, I wasn't afraid. And I just sort of looked at him and I thought, poor guy. No, I'm not going along with this. And it's just this whole aggression just sort of fell flat. and Didn't have anything to, no traction for it. And so that, that, that's a really good example of uh, our commitment to... to um, Harmlessness can be a protection uh, in its own way. Yes. The fair freedom, freedom from fear, freedom from ideologies, and in some translations, freedom from oppression, which I really like. Yes, it's en, uh, enmity. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi has it as enmity. No, freedom from fear, freedom from anything, yes? Yeah. Yeah, the 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 one I copied down from Bhikkhu Bodhi was um, freedom from fear, freedom from enmity, and and uh, freedom from affliction. But, uh, but yeah, it's oppression because also if you are not oppressing others, they cannot oppress you. You know that they might try to, and I mean, obviously it's a it's a bigger question in terms of society and and uh, the abuse that people sort of suffer in different ways, but. Um, there's also the that like that I was describing this incident on the train platform where someone uh, just chose not to be oppressed, and even though physically she was far far weaker than her attacker, that came through, and it, and it it, it uh, sort of diffused the the situation. Hmm? Possibly, possibly. <laughs> It wasn't you, so. Hmm? Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't think he he grabbed her, but uh, I'm I'm not sure. But he certainly was. Uh, they were the only two people on the platform. So. Yeah, I'm not I'm not absolutely certain about the the, uh, the details of it, but uh, he uh, he gave up and uh, sort of, and apologized. What do you mean, fearful animosity? Animosity, what does it mean? Animosity means um, 
when you're uh, you're contending against something or you have negative negative feelings towards someone that uh, it's like a um, like aversion, negativity, aggression um, all of those things are uh, a part of it no, it's not anathema. Mm. Animosity. Mm. No, anathema is a completely different word. So, animosity is is referring to the um, uh, the quality of of like hatred and uh, a sense of uh, violence or, or uh, aggression, attacking, like, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, that it's uh, often it's used in terms of uh, like uh, and maybe not not a physical aggression, but like um, the, like the feeling in the workplace, passive aggressive. Like there's a lot of animosity in the workplace. Like or like I don't want to go in the kitchen because there's a lot of animosity there. <laughs> you know, like you can there's sort of when you, like a tension in the air or a sense of conflict. So it often is used to refer to that kind of thing. <clears throat> so it's in terms of the the five fearful animosities it's quite it's quite good as it's referring to that uh, an inner feeling as well it's quite a, a helpful term of a kind of a stressing within yourself as well anger anger yeah or, or that you it's a, a like a negativity anger aggression it's all around that that area Well, this sutta is number 41 in the um, Nidanavaga. The one I just read out. No, I mean, it's a small, um, you know, it's not part of the Majuara. Well, the, the five fearful animosities, they're mentioned in a number of places. That This particular sutta is in the Nidanavaga. Uh, it's a, yeah, if you want to look it up, it's page 308. 309 here, but um, yeah, the, the, it's, it's not an uncommon term. Probably in the Book of the Fives in the numerical discourses too. But it's after 10 past 12, so it's time to finish. <laughs>